We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Jonah. Uh, We had a brief break last week while Jonah spent some time in the belly of a great fish, and I took a weekend off. And uh, we pick up this morning uh, after Jonah is unceremoniously vomited up onto dry land. So for those of you who may be visiting, we've been working our way through this book, and I'm sure it's a story that you're familiar with that God goes and tells Jonah to preach to the city of Nineveh. Uh, That was the capital city of Assyria. Uh, The Assyrians were a really bad lot. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, we we seem to have done something with our computer. Is it the sound or the PC? Ah, okay. So it's because load shedding stopped now that we're having problems. Okay. So... Yeah, the the Assyrians were a really bad lot. Uh, Basically, they were a terrorist state that was trying to take over the world by violent conquest. Uh, They were the sworn enemies of Israel, uh, and in time, in fact, they would overrun the northern kingdom of Israel. So in one sense, it's quite understandable that when Jonah is called to go and preach to Nineveh, he gets up and he heads in the opposite direction as far away as possible from the city of Nineveh. We've seen, too, that this isn't simply a story about Jonah, but it's a story about me and it's a story about you. That sin, in essence, is us running away from God And grace, in in essence, is God running after us in love to save us from our self-destructive behavior. Last time we had a look at chapter 2 and Jonah's personal repentance in response to God's grace. And this morning we're going to have a look at chapter 3 and see the repentance of an entire city. So if you've got a Bible with you, you might like to turn to Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to read the entire chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let him give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had, that, that he had threatened. This is God's word. 
So verse 1 of this passage must be one of the most beautiful and hopeful verses in all of Scripture. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, after he'd messed up, after he'd run away, after he'd rejected God, after he'd thrown himself into the sea to escape God, the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. God is the God of the second chance. And we see it again and again in the Bible. Uh, Moses murders a man and runs out into the desert, but the word of the Lord comes to him again. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, has her husband murdered, but the word of the Lord comes to him again. Elijah prays to God, take away my life, but the word of the Lord comes to Elijah again. Peter denies three times that he knows Jesus, but the word of the Lord comes to Peter again. John Mark deserts Paul at Pamphylia, but the word of the Lord comes to him again, and we have the gospel of Mark. God is truly the God of the second and the 294th chance, and his word comes to us again. It doesn't matter in what, what way you think you failed God this morning. When we repent and we turn to him, his word comes to us again. And God still uses broken people because, in fact, that's the only kind of people that there are. God's next word to Jonah is an important one, too. It's that little word, go. Verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh. It's worth bearing in mind that God's word to Jonah is the same as his word to us. Remember Jesus' final words to the disciples in Matthew 28. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Each one of us are called by God. Having experienced God's grace and forgiveness, reconciliation with him through the Lord Jesus, we can't help but want to go and share that with others. Some of us are called to cross the seas and to go to new places and new countries. Most of us are called to cross the street or cross the corridor or cross the room and share our relationship with Jesus, with family and friends and colleagues and neighbors and co-workers. But all of us need to keep that little word in mind, God's commission to go. Well, having looked at something of God's grace in Jonah's personal life, let's look at this revival that takes place in the city of Nineveh. In this chapter, we read about one of the greatest revivals of all time, and there are a couple of characteristics of this revival that I think are important for us to see. Firstly, we can say that the true revival is a sovereign work of God. Jonah did go and preach to the people of Nineveh, but we must ask, well, why them? Why the Ninevites? Why at that particular point in history? The people of Nineveh weren't praying for revival. They weren't running an alpha course. They don't seem to have had any interest in God whatsoever, and yet God sends Jonah to go and preach to them. 
And I think that this is simply an illustration of something we saw last time in chapter 2, where Jonah says, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation is His work, and not ours. We can pray, and we must pray for revival. We can preach for revival. We can prepare for revival through personal holiness. But we cannot bring about revival. It's something that God alone can do, sometimes by using our efforts and sometimes without any input from us whatsoever. And it's worth reminding ourselves about that in terms of our own salvation too. When did God save us? Was it when we started getting interested in spiritual things? When we started going to church or reading our Bibles or praying? No, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we knew his name, before we were interested in him, while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. You see, the gospel is not about something that we do, but about what has been done for us. It is good news. News is about something that has happened. We don't have to do anything about it. Advice is something that we need to do something about. But this is good news, that Christ has paid the price for our sins and has given us his righteousness. And by faith, we simply have to say yes to what God has done for us. And that's really encouraging then, because if we don't earn our salvation, it means we can't unearn it either. And my salvation doesn't depend on something as flimsy as my grip on God, but on his strong grip on me, which is what we see in Jonah's life, the sovereignty of God in revival. The second thing we can say about true revival is that it's based on the word of God. In verse 2, God says to Jonah, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. True revival depends on God's word. There's no substitute for it. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul tells us, Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Nothing else can change lives. Not our good deeds towards others, not social justice, not great worship, not even miracles. It wasn't Jonah's account of the miracle of the fish that changed Nineveh, but Jonah's preaching. Now, I believe in miracles, but miracles validate the truth of the preached word. They cannot be substitutes for that word. We must be wary of any ministry of miracles that's disconnected in some way from a ministry of preaching God's word carefully and correctly. In Acts 14, we get the pattern where we read that Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time in Iconium speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. I think there's a distinct trend uh, within the Christian church, which has always been there, to abandon the preaching of God's word and turn aside to myths and novelties and gimmicks in an attempt to bring more people to salvation. Let's make Christianity and the gospel as palatable as possible so that more people will be saved. Uh, 
But when we leave God's word and go after any passing wind of teaching, we at the same time abandon any hope of bringing others to true repentance and salvation. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 and says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In his commentary on this passage, the French theologian Jacques Ellul writes, Jonah did not become free to select for himself what he would say to the people of Nineveh. He didn't go to them to tell about his experiences or the revelations he might have had. God commanded the content of his preaching. Thus, no matter what our spiritual development may be, our witness is fast bound to the word of God. The greatest saint or mystic can say nothing of value unless it is based solely on God's word. Even if an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, you're not to believe him. And what is true in relation to the individual is also true in relation to the church. The church is not to choose its preaching. It must simply follow as faithfully as possible the word of God. So let's spend a moment looking at God's word to the people of Nineveh through Jonah. Uh, There's nothing palatable or seeker-sensitive about it. Verse 4, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And God speaks this message to Nineveh because, as God said to Jonah in chapter 1, the great city of Nineveh has great wickedness that has come up before me. So perhaps just to say that God's wrath against sin and wickedness is just one part of the character of God And next week, we'll have a look at another part of the character of God in chapter 4, where Jonah says, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So how do we hold these two parts together? Well, we do so in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who preached a similar message to Jonah, in fact, Matthew chapter 4, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. It's a coming kingdom that will be set up at the end of time with the total destruction and elimination of everything that is wicked and evil. Which sounds like bad news because we are evil and there is nothing we can do to redeem ourselves. But in the rest of Jesus' life and teaching, we discover that the king has already come. And that he, on the cross, takes the fire of God's wrath on himself so that all who right now accept his lordship will experience that coming kingdom, not as wrath, but as justice, peace, and joy. That coming kingdom is anticipated right now as we experience a measure of joy and peace as individuals, and the kingdom is anticipated as we form little alternative communities, the church, communities that are characterized by justice and peace and joy. But the glimpses of the kingdom that we see now in part will be perfected and glorified at the final coming of the king in ways that we can barely imagine. Do you see then how the two parts of God's character that we see in the book of Jonah hold together? That God's wrath is his settled hostility to evil, his refusal to compromise with it, his resolve to condemn it, just as we would feel anger against someone that was threatening one of our children, 
And yet, God's love and compassion are seen in that he takes that wrath upon himself so that we can come to God. Our sin has been dealt with on the cross. And have you experienced the truth of that message for yourself? And if not, what's preventing you from even this morning saying to Jesus, Lord, forgive me. Come and take control of my life. Thirdly, we can say that genuine revival includes repentance. In verses 5 to 10, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the last, put on sackcloth. The king issued a proclamation. Don't let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. There's a lot that we could look at there, but I think the key word is found in verse 10 where we read that God saw that they turned. We've mentioned previously in this series that repentance means turning. My senior pastor in Kimberley, uh, Ian Nash, used to use this illustration from long-distance driving. Uh, living in the Northern Cape, we would, uh, as you were driving along at 120 kilometers an hour, you'd have those little meerkats who would run out into the road. And what would happen is as you were driving along, this little meerkat would run out and poke his nose out and then run halfway into the road, and then they would hear your car coming, and they would repent. Instead of going in that direction, they would turn around and go in the opposite direction. Although, sadly, you would sometimes come across the remains of meerkats who hadn't repented in time. Repentance means turning, turning from evil and turning to God, turning away from other gods, idols, things that we rely on instead of God, and turning to serve the living and true God. And turning to God always results in a changed life. The gospel indeed changes everything. In verse 8, we're told more specifically what the evil was from which the Ninevites re repented. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. In other words, God was interested in social justice. I mentioned a moment ago that a concern for social justice can't be a substitute for preaching the gospel. But notice that the gospel, evangelism, always results in a concern for social justice. This relationship between justice and evangelism is a tricky one, and it's possible to get that relationship wrong in a variety of different ways. So you have some churches who emphasize social justice to such a point that it becomes equivalent to salvation, so that if you feed someone and you clothe them and you give them a home, you've in effect saved them. There's no emphasis on a personal relationship with God through the cross. Other churches emphasize personal salvation without any reference to social justice. Some see social justice as a means to an end, that if we feed people and clothe people, they will become Christians. But the biblical relationship between evangelism and social justice is far more integrated than any of those views. And here I'm borrowing from Tim Keller's book on Jonah. 
But God's word tells us that all of our social problems come as a result of men and women being alienated from God. And so the most radical and loving thing we can do for a person is to see that person reconciled to God through the message of the gospel. And doing justice is inseparably attached to that. Because if you have a new relationship with God, it must affect every other relationship. You have a new concern and love for everyone around you, whether they are Christian or not. And that's what we see in the lives of the Ninevites, that they call on God and the evidence that they have met with God to some degree is seen in their concern for a just and equal society. But fourthly and finally, we can say that genuine revival includes genuine relationship. This is where the passage is a little bit ambiguous because at first glance, this revival seems pretty impressive. An entire city turns to God. But I wonder if you notice what was absent from this revival. We can see what was absent by looking at the repentance of the sailors back in chapter 1. Do you remember that there we read that in the storm, the sailors cried out to the Lord, to Yahweh. And after the storm is stilled, we read, At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. There's a contrast between those two revivals. Here in chapter 3, we don't have that personal relationship. The Ninevites use the general word for God, El, not the personal name, Yahweh. There's no record that they feared Yahweh or made sacrifices to him or made vows to him. That personal relationship seems to be absent. Now, we're not sure, and Bible commentators differ, but this does highlight a very important principle, and that is that sheer numbers are not the evidence for a genuine work of God. It's so easy for us as believers to try and measure the work of God in the same way that we measure any success. And so you tell someone about the church prayer meeting or the church dinner or the, or the holiday Bible club, and what's the first question you are asked? How many people came? <laughs> and if there were a lot of people, then the prayer meeting must have been a success. We so easily forget the topsy-turvy mathematics of the Bible, where Gideon and 300 men defeat an army that can't be counted, where David, the smallest, defeats the giant, where a widow's two cents are more valuable than the bags of gold put in by the rich men. And often today, you hear people say of a particular church or movement or curriculum, it must be of God, look at the fruit by which they mean that lots of people are coming along and feeling good about it, perhaps are even initially changed by it. But you remember Jesus' words to the disciples in John 15. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And in the parable of the sower, Jesus spoke about the seed that fell among the rocky places and sprang up quickly. And he said, this is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. So enthusiasm, numbers, noise, 
Even an initial change are no indicators of a genuine work of God. We've got to go back to some of the indicators that we've already looked at. How closely does this ministry, this pastor, this new book hold to the clear and careful teaching of God's Word? Does this result in genuine repentance that leads to a life changed in every area? Does this result in a genuine relationship with the living God of the Bible who calls me to sacrifice and service and suffering or merely a caricature of God, a God who is there to meet my needs and do for me whatever I ask? What happened with the Ninevites in the long term? Well, the nation of Assyria did in time destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. They didn't give up their violence. Their evil actions were, in fact, still under the control of a sovereign God because he used the Assyrians to punish his people to turn their hearts back to him. And though the Assyrians are used in this way by God, they're still responsible for their evil so that in time God punishes them. If you read the book of Isaiah, you see that. But around the 7th century BC, the Assyrian Empire was itself destroyed by the Babylonians. No evidence of genuine relationship, of a long obedience in the same direction. Well, we've looked at a great deal this morning, and there's much more that we could look at. But, but as we close, let's just recap and consider carefully before God how today's passage applies to us personally. God is the God of the second chance. No matter where you might find yourself this morning, you can turn to him again and again. Having experienced his grace, his unmerited favor in our own lives, we're commanded to go and tell others. Indeed, if we've genuinely encountered him, we won't be able not to tell others. We proclaim God's word and we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And the gospel is that God loves us and has created us for relationship with him. And even though we've turned from him in our sin, he's taken the punishment for our sin on the cross and has done everything possible for us to come back to him. We enter into that relationship with God through repentance and faith, and we continue to grow in that relationship through repentance and faith. Repentance turning from other gods in which we tend to trust, and faith turning to God, the living God. And all of that results in a life that is changed, where every area of our lives is changed. And so let's pray right now that God would send his revival on us. Let's pray.